Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Coming up, Katha Pollitt says Donald Trump's campaign may provoke women to strike back. Also, Adam Schatz looks at how we got here, how eight years of Obama started on such a high note of hope, how Obama provoked a white backlash, and how the spirit of black resistance was rekindled during the Obama years. And Tom Frank will talk about email, We can learn a lot from email. We start today with Gary Young. He's a columnist for The Nation and a fellow at The Nation Institute and an award-winning writer for The Guardian. He's also written several books. The new one is Another Day in the Death of America. We talked about it here a couple of weeks ago. Gary, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, you've spent the last several weeks in Muncie, Indiana, reporting for The Guardian. Why are you in Muncie? Well, two reasons, really. Muncie, uh, or Delaware County, where Muncie is located, voted for both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And so I thought that is a good place to start in terms of understanding an election in which neither party loves its candidate. But then also, uh, Muncie was the focus of a study in the 20s called Middletown, which cast Muncie, which is about 70,000 people, as the archetypal American town, uh, which in a range of ways, of course, it wasn't. Uh, but nonetheless, the Middletown study in the book that came out of it by the Limps became a best-selling sociological, iconic survey. It's also, that's not why I came here, but it is also a post-industrial town. Transmissions, it used to make car transmissions, and that nearly all of those jobs have gone. And, um, you know, I spoke to the local leader of the Republican Party who loaded the last of the machines to be shipped away to Mexico and so on. So So it's a town where you can talk about global trade and people know what you're talking about. Now, everybody I know in in L.A. and New York is obsessed with the election, and especially with Donald Trump. Not just the daily news, but the hourly updates. Have you seen the latest poll? Have you seen the latest op-ed? Is it like that in Muncie? No. No, it's not. I mean, when I arrived on uh, Sunday of the second debate, I went into one of the main bars in town, and it it wasn't on. Uh, 
and um, they uh, let me uh, watch it so long as I watched it with the sound down, closed captioning, <laughs> which, which frankly I would recommend if, okay. if there was ever another idea like that again. Okay. Does then everybody gather around to watch the debate with you? No, but there were about 20 people there, and I was watching it. The barman watched it with me for a while, and there was one other person watching it. Otherwise, no, nobody was you know, paying any attention at all. And I'm not going to tell you that that reflects how the whole of Muncie feels, but this would be one of the more popular bars in town, and it says something. Because on my Twitter feed, there were people in England who had stayed up until, you know, two o'clock in the morning to watch this debate. <laughs> and here we were. It was playing out in real time and people really couldn't give a hoot. One of your reports is about a meeting you went to on the second floor of Chris Hyatt's print shop. It was a fascinating and significant story. Tell us about that one. Well, this was a local uh, conservative group called Concerned Citizens of Delaware County for Good Government, by which they mean small government, really. And it's a kind of Tea Party group. So these were Tea Party folks, or the Republican hard right. I think there were 12 people in the room, six men, six women. Very few of them backed Trump in the primaries. All of them had criticisms that one would recognize, even if... They didn't quite see all of his, you know, flaws in quite the same way as uh, some of your listeners would. But um, there was a, a very interesting interaction in which um, one of the women said, and you could just mirror this for liberals all over, how could people be so stupid as to be supporting that woman? Don't they read huh. the news? Huh. And then one of the men said... Um, Something to the effect that they're not really thinking, a lot of them are like sheep. And she said, well, how can people be so stupid? Why would people be so stupid? And he said, well, you just can't fix that. And then you get a sense, there were two things that I learned from that encounter, and that's been borne out since. The first is that people who will vote for Trump, generally speaking, from my experience here, are not blind to his flaws. They won't take lectures from liberals about sexual harassment because they talk about Clinton and um, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton enabling him and so on. But you cannot underestimate how much they loathe Hillary Clinton. I mean, they really, really despise that woman to the extent that if you were to think and your listeners were to think, what would Hillary have to do for me not to vote for her? against Trump. That's what they think about Trump. Hmm. What would he have to do for us not to support him against her? She's a galvanizing force. So people in Muncie are suffering from the aftermath of deindustrialization. But how can mm -hmm. they be foolish enough to think that Donald Trump can bring jobs back to Muncie? It's, it's ridiculous. You might even call them stupid and deplorable, but I know that would be wrong. Well, I'm not going to play devil's advocate here, but I, I will ask you, you know, a, a different question. First of all, what was the single most likely thing that you can point to that got rid of those jobs? NAFTA. And who did NAFTA? And who supported NAFTA? So there's that, first of all. 
So if you're looking for someone to blame for the collapse of manufacturing in your town, then you might, you might blame Bill Clinton. And given that Hillary claims his, his legacy as her own, when we were in the White House, we did this and so on. So there's that. But then there's a second thing, which is a third of this city is in poverty. There's a major heroin problem here. One that means that even when there are jobs, a lot of the people can't pass a drug test. The local Democratic administration is under investigation by the FBI for corruption. And when they look at what's going on, when people look at what's going on, they think, I need something big to happen. I need something major, which is why so many people voted for Bernie, a message about trade. And I stand for a major change. There will be something major changing in your life. So if you need a major change, if you need things to be shaken up, do you vote for Hillary or do you vote for Donald? You know, when you pose it in that way, how will they think that Donald Trump could do? Well, I don't think most of them do. I said to one person, he said, uh, I said, what do you like you know, about Donald Trump? And he said that, you know, that message, you know, make America great again. And I said to him, do you think those jobs are coming back? And he said, no, no, I don't. But I think we have to try. There is a, an air of desperation about the place. Now, the people I've been studying, who voted what from where, and it's not actually the poor, in the poor white areas, more people voted for Sanders than voted for Trump. And actually, a large number of people voted for Hillary. In the black areas, they voted for Hillary. Trump's base here, as in the rest of America, is still among wealthier white people. Uh, he does well amongst white men without a college education, but he doesn't reign supreme among those communities by any manner of means. Gary Young, in his new column in The Nation, he says, the fact that the messenger is deranged doesn't mean the message itself contains no significant truths. Gary, you're doing great things with the story of Muncie. Thanks for talking about it with us today. Thanks for having me, Jim. Now it's time to talk politics with Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. Her most recent book is Pro, Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. Hi, Katha. Hi, John. A heads up to our listeners, in this segment, we may use some strong language and discuss mature topics. So if you have kids in the car, you might want to save this for later. Uh, Katha, here's a thought. Maybe there's a silver lining to the dark storm cloud that's over America. Maybe the FBI director's announcement about uh, Hillary's email is not moving the needle. Maybe she's holding her lead in the polls in the Electoral College. And maybe the horrible misogynist Donald Trump will be a catalyst for a women's uprising. What do you think? Well, I did write a column that expressed the hope that the sheer misogynist horror that is Donald Trump would galvanize women voters and, and women as, as women, you know, beyond the election. Um, and, and, you know, there have been things like that that have happened in other countries. For example, there when 
the Polish government was going to ban abortion entirely, there were huge demonstrations. There was a one-day work strike by women, and uh, the Polish government backed down. And, oh, in Ireland. Ireland is a great example. Yeah. In, yeah. in 2013, there was a case where a woman was uh, in the middle of a miscarriage, that, and the doctors refused to complete it because the fetus was alive, although not viable, and was definitely going to die. And she died. That was Savita Halapanovar. And that sparked a very, very vigorous movement to repeal the constitutional amendment that makes fetuses equal to women. And, and it was a very, repeal the eighth, very powerful. Um, so things do get kicked off sometimes by things being completely horrible. And I, I wonder, I wonder, is it just a horrible coincidence that the first woman to run for president has to run against the most misogynist man in American political history? If she'd run against, you know, little Marco or low energy Jeb or lion Ted Cruz, it would have been a completely different gender dynamic, don't you think? It wouldn't have been about women who said the Republican candidate groped them or beauty contestants who gained weight. Probably not. It might have focused more on issues like abortion rights and the power of, you know, religion to interfere in state business and stuff like that, um, and just their general reactionary politics. I mean, Trump is so weird because his dynamically hostile to women every day, all day performance, um, where every day there's a new insult, has kind of distracted the media and the electorate from his actual terrible policies. <laughs> um, and that might not have been so true if one of those other gentlemen had been nominated. I saw a wonderful uh, quote that when Patricia Schroeder who ran for Congress in Colorado in the 1980s, she was asked whether she was, quote, running as a woman, close quote, and her answer was, do I have a choice? I wonder if Hillary ever had a choice. No, I don't think she did. I think um, Susan Faludi wrote a wonderful piece in The Times last weekend in which she said, you know, of course Hillary is the focus for all the anti-feminism and anti-womanism in the country. And, you know, people say, oh, what about Margaret Thatcher? You know, of course people can deal with a woman in leadership. Well, Margaret Thatcher was an anti-feminist. Margaret Thatcher didn't put a single woman in her cabinet. She did nothing for women the whole time she was there. Um, so that was fine. <laughs> you know? That's like, you know, voting for Ben Carson if you're a white racist. As long as the person of the stigmatized identity identifies with you, they can be your little pet or, you know, or even your fearless leader like Margaret Thatcher. Some things are more important than, you know, your, your personal identity sometimes. But in the case of Hillary, who is a feminist, and I don't at all hold with people who say she's a big fake and she's not a feminist and all like that. She is a feminist. She's what feminism is in this country, like it or not. And that is why so many people hate her. We know a lot about Trump voters. We've spent time uh, on this show uh, with people who went went into Trump country and took seriously the arguments and the experiences and the history of people who are supporting Trump. But I guess I must have missed all the profiles and feature stories and in-depth research on 
Hillary voters. What what do we know about Hillary voters? This is what's so fascinating. I think every per, every Trump supporter who ever went to one of those monster rallies has now been the subject of a you know, 20 page profile in the New York Times. Um, and Bernie supporters also were laboriously interviewed and speculated about. And I think that it's because those people seemed new, they seemed unusual. There was just more, oh, who are these people? They're popping up out of nowhere. Um, and then they happen to belong to identities people are curious about, uh, the white working class, although that's a little exaggerated in the case of Trump, or young people. Uh, and, you know, everything is about young people in America. You know, there's a lot of stereotypes of Hillary voters. What do we know about Hillary voters? Oh, John, it's just a bunch of women well past their last fuckable day. You know, it's good old mom still going on about marching for women's rights with Bella Abzug in the 1970s. Um, that's the stereotype. Um, and nobody cares about those women. Those women are well past their last fuckable day, and so nobody cares about them. Perhaps for those who are not familiar with the phrase, you should explain where that memorable phrase comes from. Uh, the last fuckable day comes from a wonderful skit by Amy Schumer, in which she's wandering through the woods, and she comes upon a picnic table at which women are celebrating the last fuckable day of Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who, of course, plays v the, the vice president in the wonderful series Veep. Um, and they're happy because now she can gain weight and now she can relax and she doesn't have to please men anymore. <laughs> uh, so it, it tells you something about how older women are regarded in this country. There's just a, an assumption that you know everything about these people, whereas, of course, you don't. And, you know, to say nothing of the millions of young people who were for Hillary and always were, um, and all those, what are all those black people? You know, oh, well, all those black people, they're in those states that won't count, you know, in the primaries. They're in those states that won't count on Election Day anyway. And so you make a lot of assumptions about who those people are. Um, and you get pictures in your head, and you're not curious enough to um, look, take another look. Uh, Rush Limbaugh asked his listeners, will this country want to actually watch a woman get older before their eyes on a daily basis? Yes, he did say that. And I think that, uh, you know, those people who go to those rallies and say, you know, Trump that bitch um, and don't vote for the cunt and all the rest of it, um, they are certainly not eager to see a woman age in front of them. But, you know, once you reach a certain age, it's fine. <laughs> uh, and, of course, it's only it only applies to women. I mean, Trump is older than Hillary. Interesting point. He's older than Hillary. He's on the edge of obesity. We have never seen a serious doctor's report from him or his taxes, I have to mention. Um, and yet, you know, that's all fine. People make fun of his hair. They make fun of his little hands. But nobody says, you know, oh, gosh, is he too old? Do we want to watch him get even fatter and even older in the White House? What about that hair? What if it falls off at a, while he's conferring with Putin? <laughs> so who do you think are the millions of women who will be voting for Hillary next Tuesday? Well, I think it's going to be every woman who has ever felt passed over for a promotion, 
that she couldn't get the birth control that she wanted. She got stiffed in the divorce, and that was all perfectly legal. The cops never processed her rape kit. Um, to say nothing of, you know, millions and millions and millions of women of color who also have had a hard time in this life, um, part of it being related to being a woman. And, you know, and any woman and any man who understands the threat that Donald Trump represents to just normal life in the United States. Katha Pollitt, her column in The Nation magazine is called Women Strike Back. Donald Trump's campaign has women at the end of their rope. Read it at thenation.com. Katha, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much, John. Now it's time to talk about email, and for that we turn to Tom Frank. He writes for Harper's and The Guardian these days. He's been a columnist for The Wall Street Journal and a contributor to The Nation, and his most recent book is Listen Liberal. He's a famous son of Kansas, author of the classic book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Tom Frank, welcome back. Hey, John. It's good to be here. So we've heard a lot about emails this week, these latest batch of emails that FBI Director uh, Comey talked about on Friday, are they from Hillary? Oh, man, we don't even know. Uh, I don't even think the FBI knows yet. Are they, are they, do they contain classified information? <laughs> I don't, no one knows. No one knows. It's, it's, they only just got a warrant to start reviewing them and that, I mean, who knows? Well, my own view is that there are many reasons not to be enthusiastic about Hillary. Email is pretty low on the list. That is that is totally true. And I, I'm, uh, by the way, I voted for Hillary. I'm. So uh, I, I plan to. I plan to vote for Hillary. Yeah, I went out and voted early on Friday. And by the when I got home, here was the F, the new <laughs> FBI <laughs> investigation coming over the wire. You know, uh, you know, I was so happy coming out of that voting booth, and now, you know, what what a bummer. But look, I, I, I also don't want to brush it off as being totally insignificant. But at the end of the day, the email trove that interests me far more than the FBI is the, uh, the, the, the hacked John Podesta emails that are showing up on WikiLeaks these days are sort of dribbling them out uh, very slowly. This stuff is fascinating. Tell us what you find most interesting about the John Podesta emails that the WikiLeaks uh, hack has so, revealed to historians so like I, you and me. So there, there, is, there are a number of scandals that have come out of this. There's the latest one involving Donna Brazil. There's one about Obama choosing his cabinet back in 2008. There's Hillary's speeches to Goldman Sachs and various other Wall Street banks. But what really intrigues me about it is the far more mundane, you know, the everyday emails that John Podesta was constantly uh, receiving and sending uh, to his friends and to, uh, you know, to, to, to people associated with the Democratic Party. And let me take a step back here. There's been other big email leaks in the last 15 years. There was a big one from uh, uh, surrounding Jack Abramoff. Remember this? And, and uh, this was one of the first big email scandals. And before that, there was the Enron emails, which came out. And I remember a sociologist or somebody tried to chart the Enron universe using all the different email addresses. Do you remember this? So like, here's their, their law and, and all these different points in a network and with these lines going to and from them. So you can sort of visually understand the Enron universe. And so I took that approach to looking at the Podesta emails, you know, digging around in these things. Who's CC'd on them? Who is he writing to? Who is he? And you find that uh, one of the big nodes in his network is Wall Street. 
What a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> you know, we're look, it's 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 a problem because we know objectively as reasoning human beings that uh, that the Democratic Party has a lot to do with Wall Street. But we also like to think that they're liberals, they're progressives, they're on the side of working people in the middle class. But these two things are, frankly, contradictory. They, you know, they can't both be true. And to read these emails, man, it, it, it's not just that Wall Street gives them a lot of money. It's that guys from Wall Street or private equity or uh, venture capital or whatever you want to call it, uh, guys in investment banking have a role in their every policy discussion. They're just always there. It's like they're part of the Democratic Party. They're always getting CC'd on things. The most outrageous example is the one I referred to earlier, where uh, when uh, President Obama was, even before he was elected president in 2008, Podesta and his friends and his colleagues, I should say, were choosing Obama's cabinet or appear to have been choosing Obama's cabinet for him. This is even before the election of 2008. And the guy who seems to have been laying down the, the you know, the names, uh, supplying the names for Obama's cabinet was writing from a Citibank email address. Mm. I mean, it just blows your mind. Yeah. You, th you think of the great mystery of the Obama years is why did this guy go so easy on Wall Street? And I, 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 I want to suggest to you, John, that we now know the answer. <laughs> you know, one of the things I found most fascinating about your huge story in The Guardian about the Podesta emails, which you have studied in such glorious detail, is the social world of the upper circles of the Democratic Party that yes. you revealed. Let me just say the words the vineyard yeah. <laughs> and the word internship. Oh, 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 yeah. So <laughs> the, the vineyard. OK, so okay, I, I, entered, the vineyard. I, I entered the word vineyard. OK, so it, listen, liberal, the, the last chapter of my of my new book, Listen, Liberal, is about me visiting Martha's Vineyard and I, and Martha's Vineyard. You know, when I was growing up in Kansas City and probably the same for you in, in Minnesota, I didn't even know what that was. I never heard of it. OK, but what you know, you, you move to the East Coast and everybody's going there on vacation. And what what is this place? And it is the place where presidents of the Democratic variety go on vacation and where they hang around with like Harvard professors and uh, uh, people in venture capital and, you know, uh, enlightened billionaires, shall we say. <laughs> this is where this is where the billionaires and the politicians get together and assure one another of what fine, virtuous, noble people they are, it, you know, amid the, the waves lapping gently at their at their feet on this beautiful island off the coast of Massachusetts. And the, and the thing that uh, that uh, sort of surprised me, I'm very naive, is Billionaires from Silicon Valley, billionaires yes. from Hollywood. Yeah, they fly They're, to the East Coast. Why? Why? <laughs> Here in Los yeah, Angeles, it's a good the question. weather is so much better because in Southern California than it is in rainy, cold, mosquito-filled Massachusetts. Yes. Why would they yes. take their vacations in Massachusetts when they already live in California? Because this is the vortex of, of the world. This is it. I mean, this is the vortex of their, of their world. But so I entered, of course, going through the Podesta emails, I just started entering you know, telling words and phrases in there. And did they not? Uh, like vineyard. So vineyard. Did, and they never mean, they never mean like I'm growing <laughs> grapes in the backyard. <laughs> did you not find one email uh, in the Podesta files uh, with the keyword vineyard that was about Bernie Sanders? Oh, yes. So, the, so okay. So, you know, most of them are about Podesta going on vacation there, Podesta's friends who are on vacation there. The president is there. Can we get in touch with them? What about this fundraiser that Hillary is doing there? Hillary goes there all the time, by the way. This is because the billionaires have such a presence there. They, they go there to do fundraisers. They both go on. They can, you know, go golfing, 
play on the beach and then do a fundraiser at night or two fundraisers. You know, it's that kind of place. And so as they're describing this in these emails, you know, all the different fundraisers, all the different things that they do, the the elaborate banquet that that Podesta gets invited to on Martha's Vineyard. And then they also scheme to nail Bernie Sanders for having gone to a fundraiser on the vineyard, even as they're talking about all the good times they're having there. We're also going to hit Bernie Sanders with this. And what did you find when you entered the word internship? Well, into it, the, I, I, the word I entered was resume. Resume, even <laughs> yes. better. Resume is a uh, is a killer. And uh, what you find is many, many, many people asking John Podesta to get them a job uh, or to help them get a job in whatever uh, industry. It's usually so you find people going from the Clinton Foundation to, say, the State Department or to into some private uh, business or, or, or want to get into a startup or they want to get venture capital or they want to get their kids started uh, on, on the Clinton campaign. Uh, you know, get some somebody a job in one of these venues. And he seems to have been the go-to guy in in all of this stuff. And it is fascinating to me. The I mean, we talk about the revolving door in Washington, meaning people go from industry into government and then back into industry and collect their reward. You know, and it's it's regarded as a fairly corrupt system. But what what you're watching, what you're seeing here in the, in the Podesta emails is the revolving door is a way of life. You know, that these people go from foundation to private company to working for the government, always specifically the State Department, not always, but usually the State Department, going back and forth from one node of this network to another. And there's really no difference. And the funny thing is that these people love to imagine this is the great fantasy of liberal land is that they inhabit a meritocracy where people rise and fall based on their brilliance and how they did in school and how they're doing in their professional career. You know, they always use the word smart, right? This, this was the, this is in some ways, this is the great sort of uh, a hubris of the Obama administration that they put all the smartest people in charge and look what happened. You know, look what, look at what they, the hash they made of everything, but they're so smart. That's always taken for granted. But what we now realize after reading these emails is that yes, you should be smart. And yes, if you want to get ahead in this world, you should have gone to Harvard or you should have gone to Yale or you should have gone to Georgetown. But what really matters is that you have to have John Podesta's email address. Tom Frank, he wrote the book, Listen Liberal. You can read his piece on the Podesta emails at theguardian.com. Thanks for talking with us today. It's my pleasure. Today, we want to remember where we've been over the last eight years. And for that, we turn to Adam Schatz. He's the former literary editor of The Nation. He's now a contributing editor at the London Review of Books, and he writes for the New York Review and the New York Times Magazine. We reached him in New York City. Adam Schatz, welcome. Thank you for having me, John. Well, it was eight years ago next week that we elected our first black president. Remind us what it felt like that night. Uh, it felt euphoric and it felt historic. You felt as if this country were actually uh, turning a page in its uh, racial history. Um, and I think that even those of us who were skeptical of that notion uh, allowed ourselves to feel some of that buoyant optimism that evening. The hope was that Obama's presidency would be transformative and that we might even enter what some people called a post-racial era. Who were the people who talked about entering a post-racial era? Well, I think at first it was, it was liberals who hoped that we might be entering uh, a post-racial era. 
But it turned out that for uh, Obama's uh, resolute uh, adversaries on Capitol Hill and throughout the country, post-racial meant that black people should stop complaining because a black man was in the White House. I remember about that election night in 2008 it was a friend who said, Obama's going to disappoint us terribly, but this is still a great night. When when did the disappointment begin for, for you and for others of us, especially on this question of the racial divide in America? I, I think that the disappointment began uh, soon after he took office, uh, particularly in his handling of the financial crisis when he showed himself to be far more comfortable uh, with uh, people in the uh, Harvard set than his liberal supporters uh, might have hoped. Um, turned out that this would not really be a very uh, transformative uh, presidency at all. And I think there was also a great deal of disappointment that uh, Obama uh, shied away from, uh, from, from discussing the specific concerns of, of black Americans. But I think that's changed in the past couple of years, um, partly owing to his response to some of the uh, catastrophes that, that have occurred, such as the uh, massacre in Charleston, where his uh, response really was transcendent. In the beginning, he talked about the need for a national conversation on race. What, what did that mean? I still ask myself that question. I don't know that the national conversation on race uh, really amounted to much uh, beyond a kind of call for, uh, for a more uh, civilized uh, and polite uh, dialogue. Uh, much along the lines of the kind of bipartisanship that he pursued uh, uh, quixotically uh, in Washington. And, and one, sort, one actually wonders whether Obama himself feels terribly uh, disappointed uh, by his own efforts to achieve that conversation. Well, there was one striking thing about the national conversation, and, and that was the conversation that quickly uh, arose about whether uh, Obama was a Muslim born in Kenya, not an American, not a citizen. And who was the voice? Who was the leader? Who was the top man of this new birther movement? Well, John, he was the unnameable, of course. <laughs> Donald Trump himself. You know, it's been it's been suggested that this is um, uh, just uh, consistent with uh, the kind of rumor mongering that uh, the Trump has has uh, trafficked in uh, throughout the campaign. But I think I think it points to something deeper. I it, to, to me, it's reminiscent of of, of a notion that goes goes back to the days of slavery that uh, that Black Americans uh, really aren't Americans; that they are unassimilable uh, outsiders. You'll you'll remember that uh, in the days of slavery, even even those who supported uh, abolition, many of them also uh, flirted with ideas like colonization, uh, calling for the uh, expulsion of, of black Americans to uh, places like uh, the Caribbean and, and, uh, and Liberia. I think merely the fact that Obama was black was enough to tar him as, uh, as an alien. And of course, the alternative, the alternative to having a Kenyan Muslim for president is, we are told, to make America great again. It's, it's a simple cliche, but what do you think it really means, make America great again? I think that, that Trump speaks to this fear uh, among a section of the white lower middle class. It's sometimes referred to as the working class. I tend to think of it more as a, as a lower middle class, more broadly, uh, that feels a sense of disenfranchisement. They feel that they've lost everything, they, uh, they can no longer uh, realize uh, the American dream. They're under economic, growing economic strains. And meanwhile, uh, the culture around them 
uh, is transforming. Uh, demographically, they're losing out. The country is uh, increasingly composed of people of color. And there's even a black man in the White House, which for them is the ultimate slap. And I think what's even more um, infuriating and probably humiliating to them is that the man who's occupied the, the White House these last eight years is extraordinarily gifted and talented. And uh, he's uh, someone who I think makes them uh, feel lesser. And it's very difficult for them to, uh, to accept. And so the promise that America will be made great again is the promise that it will be made white again, that they will become the owners once again, that their, their white privilege will be restored. Make America great again really means make America white again. So Obama's presidency provoked this massive racial backlash in parts of white America, which seized control of the Republican Party. It also provoked some striking new developments in black America. Uh, it certainly has. I mean, we've seen the, the emergence of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, which is a tremendously important development. And uh, on the one hand, uh, this is a movement that has arisen uh, in opposition to the police killings, which have been uh, captured on, on people's phones and on cameras of, uh, of unarmed uh, black civilians. So it's a response to, uh, to a sense of crisis. On the other hand, the, the fact that there is a, uh, a sympathetic black man in the White House, I think, has also helped to fuel this movement, even if there has been tension between the movement uh, and the president, just as there was, of course, a significant amount of tension between the civil rights movement and uh, Lyndon Johnson. So I think this is certainly uh, an important uh, product of, of the Obama years. What's also interesting about the Black Lives Matter movement is that it's decentralized. It's not uh, does not revolve around a, a single charismatic leader, and uh, it has been founded um, in large part by by women, by uh, gay and transgender people, and by people who have um, a deep involvement in the uh, in the labor movement. Well, that brings us to to this week. Now we are engaged in a great struggle against the man who rose as the voice of white racial hatred for Obama. Is it fair to say Hillary has gone pretty far towards the Black Lives Matter movement? I know she's campaigned with the mothers of the movement, the mothers of Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, and other young black men who died from police or gun violence. What do you, what do you think about that? Uh, I think that one of the striking things about Hillary's campaign has been the extent to which she has tried to ingratiate herself with uh, precisely the community that uh, she and her husband tried to distance themselves from um, in the uh, early 1990s at the time of the Democratic Leadership Council, namely African-Americans. There was a great discomfort that the Democratic Party might be identified too much uh, with black concerns. Now, uh, Hillary Clinton not only recognizes that the key to her success is African-American voters, but her campaign has received really vital support from none other than Barack Obama, whom she ran against in 2008, and Michelle Obama, um, whom she is, you know, constantly seen praising. I think it's, it's an extraordinary development. So let's assume that Hillary is elected on Tuesday, that Barack and Michelle move out of the White House on January 20th. What happens to the birthers when the black usurper is gone? Well, remember, they will have the female usurper. Donald Trump already has a narrative for, for what will have happened if he loses the election, namely that uh, the election uh, was rigged by a vast uh, left-wing conspiracy. 
And so if, if, if Hillary becomes president, I, I'm not sure that he's going to give up so easily. First of all, we, we don't know whether he's going to accept the election results. He has uh, maintained a policy of calculated ambiguity, which uh, to me is very reminiscent of, uh, of fascist movements. We might see uh, violence. Uh, we will certainly see uh, protests. When Obama became president, we immediately saw um, an effort to uh, sabotage his political initiatives. And I doubt we will see anything less or anything less well-organized once Hillary becomes president. Adam Schatz is the former literary editor of The Nation. He wrote about how Obama's presidency provoked a white backlash and rekindled a spirit of black resistance. That piece was at the L.A. Times op-ed page. Adam, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.